Hello, my name is Saul and this is the Story of London podcast. In the last part, we started covering the period from 820 until 835 as an introduction to the era of the Vikings and the war and carnage that was about to be inflicted upon London. And I ended the last episode by saying that the Vikings, those terrifying barbarian Norse warriors who we all know descended upon innocent communities to raid and plunder, were in fact probably well known to the residents of London long before they started doing this. That the residents had known these guys for years, and they had good reason to suspect that no matter what these guys did elsewhere, they themselves would be immune from any attacks as the Scandinavians they met were all merchants and traders, and basically just like them. Now that's a big claim, and seems to fly in the face of a lot of what we know about the Vikings. As such, I figure I need to demonstrate where I got this idea from, and what evidence there is to support it. And that's what this chapter is all about. So the story of London now reaches chapter 8, Odin's Fashionistas, part 2, The Dirty Secret of the Early Vikings. It is easy for us all, when examining the collision of the Vikings upon Britain, to become myopic, to allow the views of the scribes of the time whose eyesight seemed to be only able to see as far as their own horizon, and to consider the fury of the Northmen to be a uniquely English experience, that somehow the Anglo-Saxons had things harder than anyone else, that their story was unique and special in some way, that what followed in Britain was somehow bespoke and unprecedented and unlike anywhere else. Nothing could be further from the truth, however. Indeed, while one can feel a tad harsh condemning the short-sightedness of Saxon monks for not really understanding the geopolitical underpinnings of what caused those raids, we also have to contend with their descendants in the Victorian era, who seem to have taken the reports of the Vikings in Britain verbatim, and whose pomposity and desire to manifest their own sense of British manifest destiny meant they were just as ignorant of the context of the Viking raids. However, we are the children of the modern era, equipped with the technology and the ability to see simultaneous research taking place across the globe and able to grasp the implication of a host of specialities which to allow us gain a greater insight as to what actually happened. The Viking Age took place not because a bunch of Scandinavians suddenly got some urge to go out and pick a fight, but because a series of European-wide events all happened in a certain sequence. I like to picture the Scandinavians at this time like a weak, seaborne version of the Mongol hordes. They were a potential continent-changing force of barbarians, but they needed a very specific set of circumstances to unleash their full fury and potential. 
and that's what we see, a very specific set of circumstances. So to expand upon this thesis, we need to divert away from London for a brief moment. The traditional start date of the Scandinavians' impact upon Britain is always given as 793 with the attack upon the monastery of Lindisfarne. It is in reference to that we get the oft-quoted phrase, Oh, from the fury of the Northmen, O oh Lord, protect us. You know that quote. But that infamous raid upon that isolated monastery was not the first attack upon British shores. Just the first one we have a big song and dance about. After all, these records have been written by pious churchmen who were probably horrified that a large number of their fellow pious churchmen were currently on fire. If in the years preceding this, a bunch of insignificant farmers had been attacked, one could argue that some monastic scribe probably wouldn't have even heard about it. And there is evidence that there were earlier incidents. By 792, for example, the elderly but mighty King Offer of Mercia was writing a letter clarifying that monasteries and churches in Kent were exempt from many of the duties and things he required of his subjects, but they were not immune to military service against, quote, seaborne pirates with my grating fleets, unquote, which sure as heck sounds like the Vikings. And there is circumstantial evidence to suggest that part of Mercia's increased domination of Kent during this era may have been under the pretext of securing it from ongoing isolated pirate attacks. As an aside, by the way, if you read the accounts of what was going on, the primary Anglo-Saxon defence against these pirates seems to have been building bridges. No, no, bear with me here. So you see, if some pirate had a ship that could sail on the sea and up a river, as, you know, the Viking ships could do, and if by going up river they can suddenly arrive at some village or market a few miles from the coast and surprise everyone and smash and grab, that's bad. But if you build a bridge along that waterway, something made of thick wood or even better stone, not only does it give the locals a nice new way over said river, it also stops that ship there. The pirates would have to disembark and make the rest of the journey on foot, and that's not very good if you're laden with booty, and maybe it puts them off. Bridges then seem to have been the main defence against these occasional pirate raids, but by bridges we could also mean a slightly elevated ford, basically the Anglo-Saxon equivalent of a speed bump designed to prevent flat but hulled ships sailing up the rivers. Anyway, away from that mention by offer, however, we know Scandinavians were doing occasional pirate raids in desperate and differing places before the attack on Lindisfarne. From 789 onwards, we have scattered reports of attacks upon communities from as far south as the Bay of Biscay to as far north as the Atlantic Scottish Islands. Many of these attacks were unrecorded, but the overall chronology of events in England, Francia and Ireland is consistent to there being something going on. Northern Scotland is the least recorded area, but was probably also targeted this early. 
based on the, the reported rate, we have an isolated attack in Portland in Dorset in 789, followed by small attacks along the English Channel coast from Kent and westwards. It is a few years later that the raid on Northumbria's Linders Farm in 793 and Monkwear Mouth in 794 took place. The next year, in 795, we have records of attacks upon Ireland and Scotland. The rich monastery of Iona was hit hard in 795 and would be again several times after that. By 798, the raids were hitting the Isle of Man and by 799, the raids were impacting upon Aquitaine and the South Channel coast. But then, just as quickly, just as things seemed to be starting to build up steam from this point on for the next 30 years, however, the focus of the raids and activities of Vikings seems to almost exclusively shift north, focusing upon Scotland and Ireland, with their intensity growing significantly in the 820s. Basically, we're presented with a situation where Viking pirate attacks, which could potentially trouble London, but never actually did, seem to start before the 790s, but then after 799, they seem to just stop. For decades, nothing of grave concern happens until the 830s. For an entire generation, the Viking experience seems to be going on all right, but they were based almost exclusively upon Scotland, its islands, and the east coast of Ireland. Why? Well, to explain that, we have to understand something. Of all the descriptions of the Scandinavians of this era I have ever read, perhaps my favourite was the one given by historians Matthew Gabriel and David Perry. They said no matter what we do when we think about these people, we just need to remember that they always, no always, dealt with arriving in some new place in one of four ways, and always one of these four ways. If they arrived somewhere new, and the place was weak, or they thought they had a military advantage, then they would raid it, attack it, and steal anything not nailed down. This was known as going Viking, and those who did this were called Vikingers. If they arrived someplace, and the place was rich and organised, and they didn't have a military advantage, then they would trade with it, and those who did this were called merchants. If they arrived somewhere, and not only was the place tough with a powerful central authority, but they didn't want to buy anything from the merchants, then these guys would offer to fight for them. And those who do this were called mercenaries. And if they arrived somewhere and the place was deserted, or if they could make it deserted, then they would farm that land and they would be called settlers. That's it. That's the simple four things the Scandinavians would do and did do everywhere they went. Be it the coast of Frisia, be it Franconia, be it Brittany, Western Scotland, Eastern Ireland, be it the islands of the North Sea, be it the lands that would eventually become Russia, be it the Caliphate or Byzantium, the icy coasts of Iceland and Greenland or mythic Vinland, or be it the many kingdoms of England. 
they would be settlers, mercenaries, merchants, or Vikingers, dependent on what they found and also dependent on the circumstances going on around them. So when we ask why did Viking raids from about 800 to 830 suddenly focus almost entirely upon the Northern North Sea and the Irish Sea, one suggestion put forward is that resistance to the pirate raids was weaker there. This theory suggests that but the piratical Vikings may have been put off by defensive countermeasures, like the building of those speed bump bridges by the Anglo-Saxons, but that this practical Anglo-Saxon move was also matched by stuff going on in Europe, like the alleged butchering of over a hundred Viking raiders in Aquitaine in the year 799, and above all, by the now Emperor Charlemagne creating an active fleet to patrol the North, Southern North Sea and English Channel, and establishing watch posts along the coast of Francia in the year 800. The theory is that this active resistance and the presence of a large Frankish fleet was enough to make any Dane waking up one morning and going, by Odin, I think I will get into a boat and go Viking somewhere, decide that there were easier pickings to be had over in the Irish Sea, and as such they avoided the English Channel region. However, this theory is kind of undone by the fact that while they do seem to have had great success in the Western Islands of Scotland, where they began colonising them and turning them into a land the Norse called the Southern Islands, on several occasions the Irish showed they were more than capable of matching these Ostmen to give them their Irish name. Effective and bloody and successful resistance was indeed mustered by the Irish. The Ostmen were never ever able to take Ireland like they could parts of Scotland. Also we know there were Scandinavian attacks in Utrecht in the Netherlands in 810, but we know these were not Viking raids. The attack upon the great trade part of Dorstadt by King Godfred of Denmark in 810 was more likely a political move by the Danish king as part of his ongoing game of geopolitical chess he was playing against Charlemagne. What for? Well, for control over the still mostly pagan and felt they had more in common with the Scandinavians and the Franks Frisian people. And the whole thing was centred on the debate to whom they owed tribute to. But anyway, the simple explanation that it was just easier to avoid the Southern North Sea and the English Channel runs into the strong headwinds of historical complication, so a more complex theory must be sought after. And this would suggest that while the defensive measures taken by the likes of Offa and Charlemagne did indeed make a bit of a difference, that there was a missing element to this story. Fear of fierce opponents was not forcing those Scandinavian pirates into taking the northern route towards the Atlantic and the Irish Sea. No, some other element must be involved here, and some historians have suggested that element was trade. That the missing ingredient as to why for three decades Viking raiding was confined to Ireland and Scotland is that the raiding there did not interfere with the prosperous trade in the Southern North Sea Zone and the English Channel. 
Scandinavian royal peacekeepers and traders along their internal markets and onwards into the Channel region had a vested interest in preventing raids in the lands and waters where they were trading with. That basically, Vikings were sailing off, but back in Scandinavia there were very rich people screaming, stop attacking our bloody customers, will you? Or else... And those threats aren't idle. After all, during this initial period, any Vikings who went off to raid would then be returning home each year for the winter. And that kept them within reach of royal power and very angry merchants. Certainly, we know as late as the mid-830s, we have Danish kings writing to European rulers saying, Hi, we captured and killed the people who had gone a Viking in your lands. Sorry about that. Indeed, up until the later 830s, we have additional evidence to back this up, and that's found in the scarcity on the western coast of the Scandinavian peninsula of Frankish and South Anglo buried loot as compared to Northumbrian, Scottish and Irish buried loot. What does that mean? It tells us plain that few of the men who pillage the lands of the Franks or Mercia or Wessex they never returned to the west coast of the Scandinavian peninsula, while it was clear that those who raided regions that did not mess with the merchants' trade routes, they clearly could and did. So while there is never a simple explanation for anything, we can say that perhaps the Scandinavians, while known for their piratical raids with migrating fleets, were better known as traders and merchants in this region. In fact, we know for a fact that the Anglo-Saxons of Wessex and Mercia, as far back as the 780s, saw them as merchants first and foremost. How can I justify saying that? Well, remember that first ever raid upon Portland in 789. When those three Scandinavian ships landed, the local reeve or sheriff, he went with several of his men to meet these Norwegians because he just assumed they were traders not strangers, not something alien. He doesn't demand to know who they are, he just informs them that, as per usual practice, they needed to report to the local royal palace at Dorchester, where they would pay the tolls required of foreign merchants, and then would be under the king's protection, and they could trade normally. It's only after he says that the Norwegians draw their swords and start the violence. Maybe it was something he said. Probably not. But Norse traders, we should accept, were a common enough sight then in the 780s at the least that there were established protocols in place to just deal with them. And what would they have sold? Well, despite accusations that sophisticated trade needs a sophisticated civilization to arise first, which is an allegation clearly not backed by any evidence anywhere, we know the Scandinavians were known for several items over the years. They were famed for intricate and beautiful belt buckles and cloak pins, for brooches and fine decorative work of similar ilk. And we also know they were especially famed for their quality furs. And fur was much in demand and very fashionable. And they were overall a fashionable people, these Scandinavians. And this fashion made an impact upon the lands of England. In fact, their fashions made a bigger impact than their raids for the longest time. You think I'm joking? Consider this letter. 
793, so around the time Linda's farm is burning, the Northumbrian-born cleric Alcuin, the brilliant star of the court of Charlemagne, the foremost academic in Europe at the time, he decided to write a letter to the then king of his birthplace, Northumbria. Now in this letter, he mentions how a terrible new pagan menace was threatening the lands of the Anglo-Saxons, by which he clearly means the Vikings. This letter then starts to lay it on thick, with Alcuin saying this terrible event was to be expected because the good citizens of Northumbria, and given that Wessex and Kent had also been attacked, maybe he means all the Anglo-Saxons, had begun to fall into sinful ways. But in between this lament that people had not lived diligent lives of Christian goodliness and therefore God had smote them with pagans, Alcuin includes this very revealing passage about the things he felt were not very Christian and the Anglo-Saxons at the time were up to. Quote, Consider the dress, the way of wearing the hair, the luxurious habits of princes and people. Look at your trimming of beard and hair, in which you have wished to resemble the pagans. Are you not menaced by terror of them whose fashion you wished to follow? What also of the immoderate use of clothing beyond the needs of human nature, beyond the custom of our predecessors? Unquote. Look, it was Alcuin. He's living on the continent, right? So obviously any information about events going on back home is coming to him from letters via his fellow churchmen back in the Anglo-Saxon lands. So what is bothering these guys? Well, principally, how these Norsemen have started attacking and murdering monks of God, but that the English people, including the rich and powerful, especially the rich and powerful, seem to be copying these people, wearing furs like them, and even trimming and cutting their beards and hair to look like them. These do not sound like a bunch of berserker warriors. They sound like fashionistas. <laughs> For this reason, I think it would be a very fair assessment that as 8.30 dawned as the principal port of Mercia, Londonwick would have had decades of dealings with the Scandinavians and that these foreigners would have just turned up, found ready customers, unorganized and rich people, and so they traded. I know, it kind of spores the image of drug-taking berserkers gliding in on silent dragon ships out of the mist, but what can I say, history is rarely compliant with Hollywood. It does somewhat ruin the image for some to suggest that London's first encounter with the Vikings was possibly an entire generation's worth of time spent in successful trade with the Norse being famed for their awesome line in fur, fashion accessories, belt buckles, and haircuts. Hello, my name is Sven, and this season we are wearing sable. The Viking experience in London and the South for an entire generation was as fashionable merchants. 
Yet the, the hint of violence was always there. As Utrecht discovered in 810, these affable merchants could turn suddenly. And we know events and behaviour did turn and they did change. And the question we have to ask is why? Well, again, we need to look away from the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms to see a reasonable explanation. And like the reasons for this generation-long peace, it's not a simple one, but more a combination of things. So we can see in Europe, for example, that the great Frankish Empire was in the process of splitting apart. Louis the Pious, the son of Charlemagne, was just about to see his realm plunge into a series of civil wars as he managed to seriously annoy the living snot out of his brothers. And as such, that great big fleet of Frankish ships that was regularly patrolling the English Channel were about to no longer be anyone's priority. So firstly, the Scandinavians are about to see that gateway to the Southern North Sea was now open and unprotected. Secondly, we know that there was a recession going on. Remember, we mentioned it in the last chapter. We know that goods and manufacturing in Ludenwick had begun to decline from the 820s and the 830s. So there was less profit to be had. And this economic crisis probably originated in Francia because they also seem to be having a hard time of it economically as well. Now, tradition says this was directly linked to the Viking raids, but given the fact they were raiding to the north, that's putting the cart before the horse. What seems to be happening is that the merchants back in Scandinavia were generating less profit from these southern ports. And with less merchants coming to Scandinavia also, this would reduce the revenues being given to the kings there, and as such, the need to protect valued customers had begun to decline. And finally, something else was happening out on the Isles of Scotland and the Scottish coast and the east coast of Ireland. Our Scandinavian pirates began setting up winter bases in these places. They began to overwinter. They were not returning home. As I mentioned earlier, even by the mid-830s, we have Danish kings executing those Vikings who raided places trade networks operated in. But as the decade dawned, suddenly Scandinavians could raid if they wanted and not return home until things had died down. Indeed, that is exactly what happened. They would raid more prosperous lands and then hightail it to their new bases. Remember, we know from the evidence found on the Scandinavian coast that the only folks returning home to Scandinavia in this early era seemed to be the ones not raiding the south. Indeed, one of the biggest innovations of this era is the establishment of well-defended long ports like the one on the coast of Ireland called the Black Pool, or Dublin. Now, some historians have pointed out that these long ports may not have been done just to protect the Scandinavians from the likes of the Irish seeking bloody revenge for all the raiding they were doing, but also to protect bands of Vikings from one another. These are pirates after all, people who had come to the region to gain from the spoils of violence. Sure, you could raid some Pictish village, 
or some Irish monastery if you felt lucky enough. But you could also just raid Sven and his lads when their guard was down. But once existing Viking leaders like our imaginary Sven decided they were going to set up a base that couldn't be raided easily, secured behind a newly built wooden wall with excellent mooring for their longships and any newcoming opportunist Viking commander had to look elsewhere for prey. The number of Scandinavians increased as the potential number of easy targets decreased. But with these new numbers, suddenly, attacks on prosperous towns and regions in the southern trade zone of England and Francia suddenly became realistic ventures, suddenly became realistic targets. Remember, raiding only took place when the Scandinavians thought they had a military advantage. Large fleets that could undertake such operations could be formed through opportunistic agreements between ship commanders in the region, possibly up to 50 of them, each in command of only a few ships. We should see the situation as being almost identical to the much later example seen with the pirates of the Caribbean in the 17th and 18th century. The historian and specialist of the Viking Age, Neil Price, suggested in 2016 that the system that emerged there should be known as a hierarchy, with ad hoc fleets being joined or split up depending on the target strength. One or two ships could raid a village or an isolated town, but they could all suddenly come together and find agreement with others to build a suddenly massive force to attack some well-defended target. And all of this was being done out of the reach and influence of the rich merchants back in their homelands. That this was being done on the dark waters of the Irish Sea, not in the fjords of Scandinavia. It's a fascinating and enthralling theory. Whatever the case then, by the mid-830s, while Scandinavian raiders and pirates had been active in the North Sea and the Irish Sea for nearly two generations, during that same time to the likes of the residents of London, these Scandinavians were fashionable merchants and good customers, whose style people thought was cool enough to emulate so much so that local monks and holy men were complaining about it. Two generations is a long time. Risk becomes lessened over that long a time frame. All humans are guilty of hubris and cognitive failure when it comes to long-term risk assessment. The residents of Londonwick from the 790s onwards would see these Scandinavian traders who'd been coming to their port with their stylish fashions and sure, some of their compatriots attacked other folks elsewhere. But these people had become friends. These were people they'd established rapports with, who they drove hard bargains with, who they saw no risk from. To the Mercians of Londonwick then, the Vikings would never attack them. Until they did. But we'll leave that 
for the next part. And that's it, the end of chapter 8. In the next part, the story of London covers the years 835 until around 855. 20 years that would see London suddenly dragged into the brutal new real politic of the age. The violations of London. Thank you.